News on RTHK. Good morning. Three minutes after 8 o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, the NPC Standing Committee starts discussions today on Hong Kong political reform. An American journalist held captive in Syria is released, and central bankers say more is needed to improve labor markets before interest rates can be increased. As the meetings get started in Beijing today, activists and some academics here are wary. So I don't know if they have something more clever up their sleeve. It's unfortunate because... You know, what they're doing, in my view, the way they're approaching this has generated a lot of confrontation. The most confrontational party in all of this has been Beijing and in some sense in its wake, the Hong Kong government. Professor Michael Davis will have more on that shortly, as it's our top story this morning. And we'll have more on the world's top central bankers. It's clear unemployment is too high and inflation is still too low and it calls for a very strong accommodative policy and I think that's been a big factor helping our economy recover. That's John Williams, the president of the San Francisco Fed. He's one of the doves, but there are plenty of hawks as well. We're way ahead on the data compared to where we thought we'd be. Uh, we're about a year a year and a half ahead of where we thought we would be last January. That's Charles Plosser from Philadelphia. I would rather us get started raising rates sooner and raise them more gradually than to put it off, put it off, put it off until we are have to raise them, and we may have to raise them very quickly. So he's worried about that, that if you don't act now, you may have to act much more quickly later. And the ECB looks likely to move soon on more accommodation. The ECB has to do whatever it takes, saying the risks of doing too little, i.e. that cyclical unemployment becomes structural, outweigh those of doing too much, that is excessive upward wage and price pressures. That's Mike McKee from Bloomberg summarizing the Mario Draghi speech at Jackson Hole. So all these things will get discussed. Our guests on the program include Sebastian Everard, a partner with U.S. law firm Jones Day. He'll be speaking about China's antitrust investigations. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, will also be along to help us look at Jackson Hole. And Francis Lun of Geosecurities will share his thoughts on Hong Kong and Shanghai. Well, the NPC Standing Committee will open a meeting today to discuss political reform in Hong Kong. A dozen Hong Kong delegates will attend the week-long talks in Beijing. They'll be looking at the method for selecting chief executive candidates in 2017. Also discussed will be the LegCo elections in 2016. RTHK's Priscilla Ung reports that some local delegates are saying that they are expecting the NPC to make a decision on nomination. Those across the political spectrum are watching closely as to what the standing committee may say at the end of the week-long meeting. One of the local delegates who will be listening in to the meeting is Executive Councillor Cheng Yutong. Mr. Cheng, who is also the Honorary President of the Federation of Trade Unions, says he's expecting the standing committee to announce a nomination threshold. He says it's likely that individuals will be required to obtain support from at least half of the nominating committee members in order to compete for the top job. The nominating committee is a group decision-making body, so any decisions by it will need support from at least half of the committee members. 
It's very simple. As to whether the decision will provoke radical action on the streets, I think they will still go ahead. Whether or not the nomination threshold is over 50% or under 50%, but I will call on them to stop their planned action because it will not bring any benefits but disaster to the people of Hong Kong. Another local NPC delegate, Maria Tam, says the meeting will end the current debate on nomination threshold. She says the society has had an extensive discussion on the issue, and it is now time for Beijing to make a decision. Meanwhile, the president of the Legislative Council, Zhang Yuxing, says he believes the central authorities will carefully consider the views expressed during a two-day forum held in Shenzhen last week. The officials from Beijing. Uh, representing the central government, who came to Shenzhen, promised that any views expressed during the three sessions will be reflected to the uh, Standing Committee of National People's Congress. It is, of course, up to the uh, Central Committee itself to decide how they should consider these uh, views of Hong Kong people. And what kind of decision they will arrive at? Beijing officials who attended the talks in Shenzhen last week had expressed worries over the impact of political reform on national security. A delegate of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, Chen Wingqi, says universal suffrage in Hong Kong must be conducted in a way that will safeguard national security, stressing that Hong Kong is not an independent sovereign state. Priscilla Ung reporting. Meantime, Professor Michael Davis from Chinese University says that the 50% nomination threshold level is very confrontational. The most confrontational party in all of this has been Beijing, and in some sense, in its wake, the Hong Kong government by insisting on these kinds of things that no one really believes. No one believes that that's a, a universal suffrage to vet out candidates and, and manipulate the election. So uh, it's unfortunate. I think uh, the kind of opposition they face and they fear uh, is actually being generated by these heavy-handed tactics. Michael Davis will have more on this story after the news at 8.30. This is Money for Nothing. The time is 10 minutes after 8 o'clock. Markets have downside bias in Asia this morning, but the losses are not uh, too sharp. And looking at currencies, the dollar is trading at 104.2 Japanese yen. So that's the dollar stronger against the yen. The euro, 1.3197 U.S., so under $1.32. The euro continues to weaken the dollar strengthen. Well, let's now go to Jackson Hole. The consensus from leading central bankers seem to be that more needs to be done before interest rates will be raised. Here's John Williams of the San Francisco Fed. It's clear unemployment is too high and inflation is still too low and it calls for a very strong accommodative policy and I think that's been a big factor helping our economy recover and I, I wouldn't want to see us tightening the policy until we've made further progress in that sometime next year. Philly Fed President Charles Plosser, though, doesn't like a phrase in the Fed's recent statements. The phrase says that rates will be kept low for a considerable period of time. He wants it out. It's a considerable period of time after we stop purchasing assets, is the, is the language. And that means that um, um, it's bad policy in, to begin with, from my perspective, because it talks about calendar time. And what we really ought to be talking about is data. What is the data telling us, and how are we going to how we are going to use the data to decide when to start raising interest rates? Mr. Plosser just wants more rules-based decisions and less of the kind of touchy-feely approach. Well, I've been a, 
a very strong advocate for more rules-based policy. And what rules-based policy is tell you how to set the interest rate based on the data. So if the data don't change in the right way, then why should we raise rates? But I would rather us get started raising rates sooner and raise them more gradually than to put it off, put it off, put it off until we are have to raise them, and we may have to raise them very quickly. As to Europe, ECB President Mario Dabi, uh, Draghi agrees more with Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, than with the hawks like Charles Plosser. Here's Bloomberg's Mike McKee with an explanation. Draghi, much more direct about policy and the ECB's intention than Janet Yellen was in her address earlier here today. Like Yellen, he outlines the causes of unemployment, talking about Europe being struck by two recessions, a broad one that began in 2008 with the financial crisis, and a second one that largely involved the peripheral countries, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and Italy. He says those have driven unemployment rates up to significantly high levels, and at that point he warns uh, the ECB has to do whatever it takes, saying the risks of doing too little, i.e., that cyclical unemployment becomes structural, outweigh those of doing too much, that is, excessive upward wage and price pressures. And just before we introduce our first guest, uh, still have some downward pressures on gold, $1,278.60 for an ounce. And oil prices uh, continue to edge a bit lower, Brent crude, one hundred one eighty-three. We say good morning now to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Barry, good day to you. Good morning, Brian. Well, at least four hawks at the Fed, but the doves carry the day. They think that more needs to be done. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I mean, but the, the reality is that um, Janet Yellen's got a divided FOMC, and I think the doves are going to prevail in the short term. But, uh, you know, Ms. Yellen can talk about these 19 indicators that show uh, slack in the labor market, but Plosser's view that uh, you have to act against any inflationary pressure. He wants an earlier rate rise. I think uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that evolves. And in terms of Europe, uh, I like what you said about uh, Mario Draghi's speech and what Mike McKee was saying. You know, essentially you've got stagnation and contraction in Europe, and I think the next ECB meeting in September is going to be very interesting because at this point I think Mario Draghi has got to make good on his words of two years ago, anything, whatever it takes. So we'll see. Could we go so far as to say on Janet Yellen that uh, she's moved a little bit from the dove position to a more neutral position? Or would you still say that she is firmly in the dovish camp? Well, I think she's firmly in the dovish camp. But I think as chairman of the FOMC, she has to uh, walk that middle ground. And she's doing it quite skillfully. I mean, if you look at the market reaction to that Friday morning speech, it was essentially positive because she gave no hint at all as to when rates would actually rise. But I think she is a dove, without doubt. Yeah. Well, the falling bond yields uh, don't confirm the kind of bullish uh, story that uh, the U.S. is having a, a nice, strong cyclical recovery. Um, and was there much discussion about why bond yields or market interest rates were heading down? No, 
I think that's a conundrum. And I'm sure it was talked about privately, but it didn't enter into any of the papers that came up. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, look at this, 2.42% on the 10-year. We started the year, as I recall, Brian, at uh, 30 on the 10-year, and the rates have come down when everybody was saying that rates by now, we're almost at September, would be higher. So this is a conundrum. And does it suggest that there's a lot more weakness in the economy than people think? Maybe. I don't think we know yet. Because you had John Williams, and I've got this clip from him, uh, John Williams, a San Francisco Fed president, uh, admitting that the economy is starting to do well. One of the things we're seeing now, which is a good thing, is we're seeing a lot of coherence across the indicators. They're all improving. We're seeing job hires, uh, you know, employment gains, job uh, vacancies improve. Uh, and, uh, and all these things are moving together. So that's a good sign. So if you're a business manager here in Hong Kong and you're trying to make a decision whether or not the U.S. economy is really improving, thus you're going to invest more in plant and equipment here, um, you have this perplexing um, uh, story, really, that bond yields are rushing down some 60 basis points since the beginning of the year at a time when you have, you know, all these indicators that seem to suggest that the economy is getting better. So which one's right? Well, I think that the economy is getting better, but I think that perhaps this decline in the bond yield may be related to international factors. There is, of course, the China slowdown that you're very aware of. There is the worry in Europe that this is really the problem. We have the St. Louis Fed chairman say that that was the greatest risk to the world economy. It's almost as if the European problem is coming around again. And when you mentioned at the top, Brian, that the euro is now at $1, under $1.32, that's a very weak number for the euro currency. It wasn't too many weeks ago we were talking about the euro at $1.40. So this is worrisome, and I think maybe that explains the conundrum. Yeah, Chris Wood, the strategist at CLSA, was saying in his piece uh, out uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, that uh, the dollar strength that we've seen here of late is less about dollar strength and more about weakness in the euro and some other uh, countries, places like Japan. Um, so do we not read too much into dollar strength actually confirming the, um, the improving U.S. economy? Yeah, that's my guess. That's, that would be my take on it, absolutely. It is essentially that the euro is weak and getting weaker because, uh, you know, if you take Italy, for example, new car sales declining. Europe is, uh, sorry, Italy is in a real mess, and it's gone on for two years. They have a new government. They make promises. It won't work. It hasn't worked. France is almost as bad. And, of course, we know about the peripheries. The only peripheries that are doing well are Spain and Ireland. Everybody else is struggling. And then when you saw that there was no growth in the latest reporting period for Germany, that's the shock. So I think Europe is the problem, and the slowdown globally has, uh, has compounded that. I wouldn't think that the U.S. economy has grown enough to really account for the dollar's rise. It is rather weakness elsewhere. Now, I know you've been on a trip around the West Coast. Uh, you've been in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco and all the way up to um, Oregon and, and then back. Uh, what are some interesting anecdotes you can tell us about uh, that part of the country? Well, 
I'm talking about your home state, and I love being out here. I think, first of all, the property market in San Jose, Santa Clara, Cupertino, all through the Silicon Valley and into San Francisco is incredibly hot. It's very hard to find housing. The same applies in Seattle. And then you've got in Portland a lot of boom there as well, and that extends even up past Seattle into Vancouver. The Vancouver property market is hot. So you've got these islands of prosperity, and clearly that means that technology in the United States and in Canada is doing very well. So this island that I am lucky enough to see first time in 12 months looks very good to me. I don't have any real personal anecdotes, uh, uh, Brian, except to say that I visited Expedia in um, Seattle on Friday afternoon. All of these kids were coming out to start the weekend. I didn't spot one sport jacket or suit. Everybody is in a sport uh, is in a sport shirt and slacks. Yeah. That was an eye opener to me. And by the way, nobody was over thirty five. Yeah, just one final question about the wage debate. Uh, I saw some interesting um, comments, I guess, from Janet Yellen about um, the fact that wages have actually been suppressed for uh, a a long period of time, uh, but they haven't been suppressed to the point that they've actually been lowered. So that that kind of tinkers with what may happen with wages as the economy improves. Now, the thinking behind this is that if you didn't want to fire people and you didn't want to cut their wages, you kind of kept their their wages uh, on par with where they'd been. They stayed that way. If you really had your druthers, you would have lowered them by, say, a couple of percentage points a year. You didn't do that. So now as the economy gets better, you may not be in a hurry to really raise them a lot. Is that something that you think yeah, is, re- is true? I think there's uh, there's probably truth to that. I mean, these are very smart people, and a lot of economists have come to that conclusion. That makes sense. And it also makes sense is if you look at, say, Silicon Valley in Seattle, where a lot of the young employees, they get these stock options. So they want that stock price higher because that's really the compensation that so many of these bright young people are counting on in lieu of higher actual salary. So I think there is something to that. All right, Barry, thanks very much for joining us again on Money for Nothing. Well, that's Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, and the time is now 21 minutes after 8 o'clock. continue with the program. A few things to look out for today. The Hong Kong July trade data will be out. And China apparently is taking a look at a nationwide uh, property tax. Uh, The China Daily says this morning in its editions that the mainland may start a nationwide property tax next year. It follows trials in Shanghai and Chongqing. Well, let's say good morning to Francis Lun, Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities. Francis, good morning. Thanks for joining Hi, good us. Good morning. What are, you, what are you watching out for this morning? Well, actually, uh, this past week, uh, 94 brokers uh, had the rehearsal, market rehearsal for the Shanghai and China Connect. So we'll be concentrating on the stocks that will be affected by the Shanghai China Connect mainly the A50, the uh, banks, insurance, and uh, the uh, internet stocks, and the Macau gaming stocks, and all the major blue chips, the, the, the heavyweights. I think uh, uh, when, when the Shanghai China Connect opens, funds will flow in to buy up these stocks. 
Yeah, I saw this note that uh, Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing said that the test for the Stock Connect was completed smoothly. Um, are, yeah. Uh, is there much of a technical, you know, is that something that, um, you know, they have to conduct a series of tests on? Yeah, well, they they will be conducting tests for the next, I think, next four weekends. Uh, and this uh, 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 this past weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, is only Hong Kong uh, exchange doing the uh, purchasing. But then the next week, I think, it will be Shanghai and Hong Kong doing it jointly to test the system, whether there are any hitches and, and there are any unforeseen traps that we might fall into or, or some bugs in the system. Okay, you started then, off with uh, some interesting information there about... Uh, the kind yeah. of the kind of stocks and the kind of companies that mainlanders would be interested. I'm sure my listeners yeah. would be very interested to hear more about that. Uh, I'm curious yeah. why you think they might be interested in Macau, though, when it seems like the uh, direction is is for uh, you know revenues down and and thus profits down. For for, for the for the what I, the I Macau just, Macau gaming company. Oh, Macau gaming. Well. Uh, uh, Macau gaming stock that, uh, that is something that's unique in Hong Kong because uh, you, you, you look at ACS, they don't have a single gaming stock. So, 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 so which means this is, this is something that they want to buy and uh, look at Tencent, okay? Uh, uh, in the ASOC market, there is not a single large uh, uh, cap internet stock. So that they they would be very interested in buying these stocks. Uh, so and of course when you look at uh, HSBC, uh, AIA, these uh, large uh, financial institutions that they, they, that uh, international institutions that, that they don't have in China. So uh, for mainlanders, they will be interested in buying that something that they they don't have. Okay, and we've also got a lot of earnings out today. Uh, this has yeah. been a real, a real busy period for earnings. So, uh, which are the most yeah. important ones to look out for today? Well, today I think it'll be uh, sixty-six MTR, I believe. <laughs> and, and 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 after all this uh, uh, concerning delays in five uh, lines, and also the, uh, the the trouble regarding killing a dogs uh, on the East Rail, and so so everybody will be looking 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 at the MTL today. But of course, MTL is a stable company. It never deliver any surprises. So I think uh, the, the, uh, the the profit for the railway will be slightly up. So hey, Francis. Uh, another thing you mentioned, steady um, and stable. Uh, another interesting aspect of late is the uh, utilities seem to have really had a bounce, yeah. and and yeah, the REITs right. too. Would you be yeah. um, Would you be directing new money at those now? Yeah, well, uh, you look at CLP especially, uh, it was something like $64 about two weeks ago. Now it's uh, cl- close to 68 And for utility, that is uh, really a sudden uh, shot in the arm. Uh, uh, I think uh, this must be some European money that's coming in, buying up all these uh, uh, steady income stocks. Uh, I don't. I will not consider them as a high yield because the mainland banks offer better yield. They are now about between three to four percent yield. But the utilities like uh, CLP, Power SS, and uh, China Gas, 
uh, in addition to, of course, Leng Reed, they've been attracting buyers from overseas. I believe it's mainly from Europe. Uh, I think I mean, part of the reason may be because the euro, uh, uh, for the euro, the U is down to zero. They have all this excess money they don't know what to do with. So, yeah, so you get a you get a pretty good yield, uh, and you also get the stability of the of the peg and yeah. the and the U.S. Yeah, dollar. that's right, that's right. So, so I I I think part of it is is just hot money, for, uh, want, wanting something stable, stable interest rate, and stable yield, and stable business, and and REITs and uh, and utilities uh, uh, fulfill these uh, criteria. Yeah, I talked to Helen Chow, the chief China economist at Morgan Stanley last week. Uh, it was nice going over there to uh, visit with her in her offices. Uh, and one of, the yeah. things that, one of the things that she said was that she didn't think that this hot money flow was sustainable um, and that um, into the next quarter you might, you might see it slow down. What do you think? Well, I, I think the hot money will continue to come to Hong Kong because uh, 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 you look at globally, uh, Europe is on the verge of recession. And, of course, they have all this uh, trouble uh, in, in Ukraine and the Middle East. So, so uh, and, of course, uh, they fail to carry any meaningful economic reform. So, so you, you expect Europe will be in the mess for the next few years. So uh, U.S. is recovering, but, but U.S. stocks are already near all-time high. So there is not that much upside. But when you look at uh, China and Hong Kong, uh, uh, it's still qu- quite way, uh, a, a long way from the record high, especially Asia's. Yeah. Asia's have been uh, undervalued for a long, long time. Yeah, so, so I think that will attract the hot money to coming in. So should we borrow some hot money from the banks and, uh, and <laughs> juice up our uh, stock portfolios? <laughs> well, uh, do it at your own risk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, listen, we had some news out this morning. The Swiss drug maker Roche is uh, agreeing to buy Intermune, yeah. which sells mm-hmm. a drug to treat a deadly lung disease. It's quite big, $8.3 billion. Pharmaceutical yeah. companies in particular have been doing a lot of uh, merger and acquisition activity. Do you see much of that? that happening in Hong Kong? Well, uh, uh, when you look at the drug companies in Hong Kong, they are not really that big, and they don't really have any proprietary drugs. When Roche is buying something, they want something, something, uh, some drug which will be a breakthrough drug. And I'm, I'm afraid of all the drug companies in Hong Kong and China, not a single one fulfilled that criteria. They are yeah. not doing what they call the type 1 drugs. Okay, just briefly, not so much drugs, but just generally speaking, do you expect much M&A activity? Uh, surely, uh, because when, when the valuation is up, everybody will use their shares to buy something <laughs> they, that they don't have. Okay. All right, Francis, yeah. out of time for yeah. this half hour, but thanks very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Francis Lund, Chief Executive Officer of Geosecurities, joining us here on the program as we come up to the news. So the markets, as best I can tell, are just slightly lower this morning. We'll get you the full read in a few minutes. The weather today, mainly fine. Very hot in the afternoon. No mention of showers today. So that's some good news. Mainly fine tomorrow. Cloudy with showers later in the week. The news coming up next. Eight thirty. The news with Samantha Butler. 
A dozen local delegates will be attending a week-long meeting of the National People's Congress Standing Committee starting today. It's expected to discuss political reform in Hong Kong. Some delegates have said they expect the committee will announce a high nomination threshold for electing the chief executive, meaning CE candidates must win the support of at least half of the nominating committee. Professor Michael Davis is a constitutional law expert at the University of Hong Kong. Probably the best people could hope for would be a lower threshold, much like the current election committee of one-eighth, where people could be nominated. But for them to do that, they would have to accept that Democrats would be nominated. And so far, they've shown no sign that they're willing to accept that. The Democratic Republic of Congo has confirmed an outbreak of Ebola in the north of the country. The Congolese Health Minister Felix Numbi said two people who died in a fever outbreak in the province of Ecuador earlier this month had tested positive for the virus. The BBC's James Reid reports. The Health Minister's statement confirms what many people already suspected. The deadly fever outbreak in northwest Congo is indeed Ebola. The World Health Organization had previously blamed another disease. Dr Numbi told the BBC a quarantine zone was being set up. The Democratic Republic of Congo is where Ebola was first identified and six previous outbreaks have been contained. This one is not necessarily linked to the epidemic that has killed more than 1,400 people in West Africa, but it will deepen the sense that Ebola is spreading faster than efforts to control it. Islamic State fighters are reported to have seized control of the last government-held airbase in the northern Syrian province of Raqqa. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, a UK-based monitoring group, said the fighters were now in full control of the airfield. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. The final battle for the airbase was fierce and lasted several days. The jihadist fighters are reported to have finally breached the defences of the base on Sunday, storming into it and killing the soldiers that remained. Casualties have been heavy on both sides. Syrian state media acknowledged the loss, saying that troops had evacuated the airbase. It's the last remaining government outpost in the province surrounding the Islamic State fighters' key stronghold, the city of Raqqa. They celebrated earlier victories over two other bases by displaying the severed heads of soldiers in the middle of the town. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, it's 8.33. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, business and finance in the first half hour, money and politics in the second. Our big story this morning, the NPC Standing Committee will begin a week-long session in Beijing today to discuss political reform in Hong Kong. Twelve local NPC delegates will be attending the meeting. It will set the framework for the election of the chief executive by universal suffrage in 2017. Earlier, our Mike Weeks asked Professor Michael Davis, a constitutional law expert, expert at the University of Hong Kong, what he expects from the meeting in Beijing. Li Fei was in town and we're looking for signals uh, that uh, they're going to take a moderate position, but there's been little sign of it. They, it seems that it's sort of the DAB proposal, if you will, that involves uh, a 50% vote uh, to nominate somebody, a threshold to nominate somebody is one thing that seems to be uh, part of what they they are talking about, uh, at least that's you know if you're trying to read the grapevine, uh, and and it's uh, not very encouraging. It seems that uh, Beijing is having a hard time coming to grips with what one country, two systems uh, historically has meant here. 
Even if 50% threshold for the nominating committee is Beijing's ultimate goal, do you expect the MPCSC to announce that at the end of this meeting, given the implications that would have? Yeah, this is the, th- these are the questions, you know, the, and they're, they've held their cards tight to their chest. Uh, you know, the, whether they'll have some maneuver that throws this back at Hong Kong and involves uh, further deliberations, uh, although it seems kind of hard for them to maneuver out of this if they're going to insist, uh, as they have sometimes, uh, the spokesmen have said, that, that the democratic procedure in the basic law means that it has to be a 50% vote. Uh, if they're going to insist on that, then that would seem to set a baseline. And if that's done, that would unleash the response in Hong Kong. So I don't know if they have something more clever up their sleeve. It's unfortunate because, you know, what they're doing, in my view, the way they're approaching this has generated a lot of confrontation. The most confrontational party in all of this has been Beijing and, in some sense, in its wake, the Hong Kong government by insisting on these kinds of things that no one really believes. No one believes that that's a, a universal suffrage to vet out candidates and, and manipulate the election. So uh, it, it's unfortunate. I think uh, the kind of opposition they face and they fear uh, is actually being generated by these heavy-handed tactics. Professor Michael Davis, a constitutional law expert at the University of Hong Kong, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. Well, as we mentioned, 12 local NPC delegates will be attending the meetings. Peter Wong is one of those delegates, and he joins us on the line now from Beijing. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, Do you expect to attend most of these meetings? Yes, I think the purpose of uh, the more delegates from Hong Kong is to allow more Hong Kong boys to uh, share with the other standing committee members so that they would understand the the basic law or whatever the standing committee come up with uh, for the political reform uh, issues. And so our purpose is really just to address that, yeah. And what will your advice be? Will you be telling uh, other delegates that uh, there's a need for a compromise, or would you stick with a harder line? Uh, it's not, of course, not our role to say compromise, but I think it's one of the things to clarify in case some of, because there are uh, close to 200 uh, standing committee members which spread over about six subcommittees. So uh, 12 of us are spread the two in one committee to explain and to give our opinion on that. Now, as far as my opinion is concerned, actually, in December last year, I made a presentation to the Medical about my uh, perception of how the political uh, reform should take. In fact, uh, the the 50% threshold is also one of my proposals back then, because I believe that uh, it's the fundamental principles of the democratic process that the majority, I mean, uh, uh, the, ma- the minority should adhere to the majority. If you don't have 50% mandated, you can't say that that is a majority. You know? But of, of course, what so critics that, would say is, Peter, <laughs> Peter, what critics would say is you're yeah. turning what's supposed to be a nominating committee then into an election committee. Yes. It's not supposed to be an election committee. It's supposed to nominate candidates from which Hong Kong people would select the winner. Well, two things. The, the nominating committee is 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 uh, is a well enforced in the basic law, and that is, I think, the threshold which was worked out for a long time when the basic law was conceded. Number two, 
Yes, we have been working on the uh, election committee for, for a couple of times. I mean, without much uh, adverse uh, comment on it. And especially, I think, the representation, which again and again I emphasize. The election committee in the past, it embraces all the voters in Hong Kong. But you may say that it is not as liberal. It consists of about 7% direct elections and 93% indirect elections. Now, a combination of direct and indirect election is the principle of universal suffrage. And I don't know why people continuously saying that uh, there is uh, no representation. Now, the, the committee, election committee, is 1,002, whereas the America only has 500 to represent 300 sure. million people. You always so come, I think that you always nonsense talking about sports circle. Yeah, yeah this, this is an old canard for you. You always go back to it. Uh, but I think that, you know, most people here would like to see a representative um, uh, group of candidates there. And they would they would think that a 50 percent elimination or 50 percent threshold would um, would definitely rule out some candidates. Therefore, the committee becomes an election or a selection committee rather than a nominating committee. And that's where there's room for compromise. So do you think will you be given an opportunity to speak? Certainly, yeah, we are allowed to speak, uh, even as an attendee in the Senate committee. But I think the whole issue now is that uh, the, the, the complaint comes out uh, before people have been complaining about without knowing what is in the, in the uh, nominating committee. I think if the nominating committee constituents constitutes more people on the, on the, on the uh, pro-democrat side, I mean, they would have no problem with that. <laughs> but now I think that we do not actually have as yet. Uh, the, co- the, the constituents of this uh, the, uh, the nominating committee. So I think what's the point of, 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 of pre, 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 pre predicting what it is going to be like? And I think the discussion, the, the dialogue is really on the constituents of the nominating committee rather than the principles now. And I think it's really non-constructive trying to uh, really uh, the, the, the putting, putting a lot of unnecessary sentiments on, on, on the existing structure. Let's go back to... That is my view. view, Okay, well, um, yeah, and and as you say, you will get a chance to speak. Uh, Let's go back to some comments from Lee Fei, the uh, head of the Basic Law Committee in Shenzhen. He said that the Standing Committee would not be swayed by warnings of disaster for Hong Kong's reform process in in making this decision. What did he mean by that? And and why do you think he used the word, like, disaster? Well, I think again and again, the uh, anti-government camp has always been threatening Occupy Central, and uh, they are even taking more drastic steps. Now, all these threats doesn't really help, but of course, I think Mr. Lee Fei has just uh, made the point very clear. I mean, as, uh, <laughs> just to reverberate what uh, Mr. Deng Xiaoping said when he met uh, 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 Margaret Thatcher in na- 1982, uh, the, 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 the of Hong Kong has got to return to China, even if there will be major calamities in Hong Kong. So I think it just expressed the, uh, the will of the, of the existing uh, uh, central gov- government. They would not be really taken on any threats. But okay. I think that there are three, three lines, I think, which, which he has indicated. One, number one is national security is one of the prime considerations, and the patriotism of the CE are the two most important factors. I think for most people in Hong Kong, you know, national security and uh, uh, and and the latter just 
don't don't amount to significant yeah. issues. Uh, they believe that the Democrats are, um, you know, love love the state of China anyway, and that more democracy would actually enhance national security. Uh, but but in any case, we are at loggerheads now. So some compromise would seem to to need to be done. Otherwise, we're going to have a very turbulent fall. Um, where do you think the compromise could possibly come from? Would it be on that threshold of 50 percent or might it be on on loosening up how the nominating committee is constituted? I, I think it's really on the nom- I, I think that it's really on the nominating committee. Myself, I don't believe that if anything sort of 50 percent, you don't have the majority mandate and then it doesn't really comply with the democratic <laughs> So, so does that mean I mean, that you, you think that they, that, they, yeah. they they will allow a more democratized nominating committee? Uh, I hope, because uh, now there's uh, no, no, uh, no information is forthcoming as yet uh, at the moment. Uh, but I think that with all the messages which I'm getting, I think the, 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 the nominating committee constituents is the area I think we should all focus in if it is going to be constructive. I mean, going back onto some of the things that was not covered in the basic law is just creating more problems. Okay, Peter, thank you very much. Uh, Good luck with those meetings today, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. That's Peter Wong, who's one of the delegates, one of the 12 local Hong Kong NPC delegates who will be attending those meetings in Beijing, the NPC Standing Committee, beginning their week-long session looking at political reform here in Hong Kong. Okay, let's get a short market break here. The Nikkei is 37 points higher. That's up a quarter of a percent at 15,576. We see green numbers all across the region in Australia. We're up four points there at 56.44. And in Seoul, the Kospi has gained a point and a half to 20.58. Money for nothing. The time is now 16 minutes before 9 o'clock. We'll take a look uh, at more or less the other side of the equation of uh, what Peter was expressing there when we look at uh, Occupy Central and what they'll be uh, what they'll be doing if things don't go the way they hope in Beijing this week. That coming up in just a few minutes. But first, Chinese authorities have been on a major antitrust drive since July. Foreign automakers were among companies found guilty of price fixing and other violations. In some cases, there have been fines. Last week, for instance, 12 Japanese auto parts makers were levied penalties totaling some 200 million U.S. dollars. That for violations related to components supplied to mainland factories. This comes amid political tensions between Tokyo and Beijing. We're joined by Sebastian Evrard, who is a partner at Jones Day, a law firm. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning, Brian. So um, this seems to have hotted up uh, quite a bit um, in the last um, couple of weeks. Um, why do you think we're seeing this antitrust campaign at the moment? Well, Brian, uh, th- that's a very good question. Um, the enforcement, I mean, the anti-monopoly law was, was uh, adopted six years ago. And in the first uh, four or five years, we haven't really seen a, a strong enforcement. It's only in the last 18 months, I would say, that essentially NDRC has been much more aggressive. So I think what they're trying to achieve here is to send a very strong signal to the market that now they are in the business of enforcing uh, the anti-monopoly law. Um, And uh, probably the other thing that we're trying to achieve um, is that they want to send a signal as well to consumers that they are going to use the anti-monopoly law 
to uh, bring uh, prices down. And so that would be a benefit for consumers. So do you think is this prompted by something happening inside the automobile industry, for instance, weakness among local manufacturers? Or is it just bigger, you know, sort of overarching approach of the new leadership, um, the president and the premier? Well, I'm not sure that it's in the – I mean, the question is whether these investigations are actually favoring local Chinese car manufacturers. And I'm not sure the answer is that it does Mm. because right now there's a big price differential between Chinese cars – and uh, uh, foreign cars. And I'm not sure it's the, in the interest of the, of the Chinese car manufacturers to have the government force the foreigners to uh, uh, bring down their prices because then there's more you know, choice between Chinese and, and foreign cars. Yes, you do see comments from, um, for instance, the, the chief executive officer of Geely saying, we need more competition. It will force us to be better. Yeah, that's true. I think Geely is probably one of the strongest uh, uh, Chinese car manufacturers, and they've acquired a lot of technology. And indeed, for them, uh, it would be better to, uh, you know, to increase competition so that they're forced to innovate um, and, and improve their own technology so they can you know, better uh, uh, compete against foreign car makers in China and abroad. So, as you say, it may not be um, actually so good for the local companies. What would you say the mood is among foreign companies that you've talked with in Hong Kong, in uh, China? Well, there is a sense of, um, I wouldn't say panic because that's too strong a word, but we are seeing many uh, foreign companies uh, revisit their antitrust compliance policy in China. Um, Multinationals are subject to antitrust laws all around the world, so this is not something that's new. But now they're really revisiting uh, their, their policies, they're auditing their practices, they're training um, their, uh, their employees even more than in the past to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. Well, do you think that they have been uncompetitive? In other words, this is a truly uh, corrective practice, or do you think it's a political move? I don't think it's a political move um, because it's a very complex situation. I mean, if you look at the car industry, for example – um, for industrial policy reasons, uh, the foreign car makers have to enter into a joint venture uh, with Chinese car makers. Uh, and so, you know, the uh, Shanghai Automotive, Beijing Automotive, Dongfeng, um, these are all in joint ventures with the BMWs and the Daimler and the, and the Volkswagen, etc. So if the government goes after these car makers, I mean, indirectly, they're going after the Chinese car makers as well. So I'm not sure it's a it's a it's a it's politics here. I think it's uh, just you know choosing the right industries for the for for the the regulators to investigate in industries where they are able to bring prices down and so bring uh, benefits to consumers. Inevitably, would you say then that the foreign companies operating there need to bulk up? They need to add staff to help deal with these regulatory challenges. I mean, exactly. There's there's a there's a cost of compliance. Um, you need to have the right employees in place who are able to uh, train other employees, who are able to audit practices, etc. And yes, it, it's a cost. What about other industries besides the auto industry that might see some scrutiny here? Well, what we've seen in the past, uh, we've seen investigations into, uh, you know, laundry. Uh, we've seen uh, baby milk, uh, contact lenses. There's a huge investigation right now into the pharmaceutical companies. Um, High tech is also a target. I mean, and obviously when you look at other regulators around the world, I mean, they've all gone after, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry, uh, the banking industry, credit cards, etc. 
obviously the complexity in China is that some of these industries are really dominated by state-owned enterprises. I mean, you look at the bank industry, for example, these are all state-owned banks. And so it would be interesting to see if, if there is a strong willingness of the regulator to also look, look into practices by state-owned enterprises. Okay, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining us and enlightening us on this issue. It's a pleasure. Sebastian Evrard, partner at Jones Day. The time is now 10 minutes before 9 o'clock. You're listening to Money for Nothing. Well, the outcome of this week's meeting of the National People's Congress Standing Committee is likely to decide more than just Hong Kong's political reform. It's also likely to trigger or be a trigger that may transform Occupy Central from a threat into a reality. RTHK's Richard Pine takes a look now at the planned civil di- disobedience movement, its supporters and, of course, its critics. I'm Johnson Yuan Chen Yin. On 2nd of July, I was arrested in here, Chatterville. At that time, we were having a peaceful civil disobedience assembly. People were just sitting here and singing songs and also shouting out slogans about real democracy. And then at 3.30, I was arrested by police and become one of the 511 people who participate in that civil disobedience. And I do hope that more people will come in the next phase of civil disobedience. The sit-in on Cheta Road in the small hours after the annual July 1st pro-democracy march was a rehearsal for Occupy Central. The real thing aims to pressure the central government into giving Hong Kong genuine universal suffrage. It'll do that by mobilizing 10,000 people to bring the business district to a standstill. Much will depend on the outcome of a meeting that's being held in Beijing right now. One man who may be watching the standing committee of the National People's Congress's session a little closer than most is Dr. Benny Tai, an associate law professor at the University of Hong Kong. The election of the chief executive must be able to satisfy the international standard, meaning that there should be genuine choices for voters in the election. And if the standing committee's uh, coming decision preclude any possibility of such an election systems, then I think the Occupy Central will have to resort to the Civil Disobedience Act, Occupying Central, because the goal of the movement is frustrated. Dr Tai, along with fellow academic Chan Kin Man and Reverend Chu Yu Ming, initiated the Occupy Central movement early last year. He remains hopeful that this last throw of the dice is successful. We want to make a clear signal to the Hong Kong people that we have a group of people who take true democracy seriously and they're even willing to sacrifice their own personal freedom and hoping that we can arouse more concern among Hong Kong people and whether that will be able to generate more pressure on the Chinese government, we do not know. But I think that is something we think it is needed, and we hope that more people will respond to our call, especially if the decision of the standing committee seems to bore a lot of people that it is unfair and it is undemocratic. Activists like Johnson Young, the convener of the Civil Human Rights Front, say they'll take part. Mr. Young believes such action is worthwhile 
even if it doesn't change Beijing's mind. If we take part in civil disobedience, create a huge moral pressure on them, and also sentiments from other citizens, then maybe, maybe more citizens will take part in the civil society. Then this creates a new balance of power between civil society and the government. But large sections of society believe occupying central is wrong. From the moment Benny Tai's article raising the notion of the civil disobedience campaign was published in January 2013, the idea has been under attack. The Alliance for Peace and Democracy has been leading the charge against what it considers a violent and futile campaign that'll bring chaos to Hong Kong. More than 1.4 million people signed the alliance's petition opposing violence and Occupy Central, including the chief executive Si Wai Lung. Speaking after tens of thousands took part in an anti-Occupy Central rally, the group's convener Robert Chow said the civil disobedience campaign might have good intentions, but would end up turning Hong Kongers into hostages. What will happen to the common livelihood of the average Hong Kong person? I mean, it may all be for a good cause, but、um, the world is full of good intentions, and that could really harm the common folks, like the ones who come out today. So they are coming out. In a great number, to tell them no, I think the people have spoken. Mr. Chow also criticised pan-democrat legislators. He said they should be battling for universal suffrage through dialogue instead of joining Occupy Central. Their job should be meet with Beijing, meet with the Hong Kong government, fight like hell for whatever you believed in, but fight yourself, not through Occupy Central, and don't threaten Hong Kong. If they veto universal suffrage in 2017, they can come out and explain why they don't agree with the government package, and they try their best, but not by saying "occupy central first." For his part, Benny Tai says he could have signed the anti-occupy central petition. After all, he wants universal suffrage, opposes violence, and doesn't want to see occupy central go ahead. But Dr. Tai says if Hong Kong isn't given universal suffrage in line with international standards, the city could become ungovernable. Policies would not be able to be made. Conflicts will be getting more intense, and because the failure of reaching consensus、uh, in the electoral reform, it may shows to the the world that Hong Kong is not really a place that one could find consensus. And I think that will hurt the economy, society, the culture very much. Maybe even more than the immediate economic loss that Occupy Central may bring to Hong Kong. Benny Tai, the Occupy Central organizer, ending that report by Richard Pine. The time is now three minutes before nine o'clock. To Global News, the U.S. State Department says an American journalist, Peter Theo Lewis, or rather Peter Theo Curtis, has been released after two years in the hands of Islamic militants. It comes after the murder last week of another journalist, James Foley. He was beheaded by an Islamic、uh, militant in Iraq, and a video of his execution was uploaded onto YouTube. From Washington, the BBC's Rajini Vadianathan explains how the release of Peter Theo Curtis was. Secured.
We understand that the United States government and the Qatari government had been working uh, to negotiate his release. Now, in a statement, the family has said that uh, they aren't privy to the exact terms that were negotiated, but that his mother said that we were repeatedly told by representatives of the Qatari government that they were mediating for Theo's release on a humanitarian basis without the payment of money. And US Secretary of State John Kerry said that the US worked with with more than two dozen countries asking for help from anyone who might have the tools or the influence to help secure the Peter Theo Curtis's release, all that indeed of any American hostages in Syria. Meantime, the friends and family of James Foley have held a special church service in Rochester and New Hampshire, his hometown. Earlier, Syrian Muslim activists also held a vigil to honor the reporter and to denounce the militant group that killed him. This is what his mother, Diane Foley, said at the gathering. I pray that we will take up the challenge to love like Jim did and to really work for peace in this world. One of the highest religious authorities in Islam has urged the non-Arabic media not to refer to the jihadists who killed Mr. Foley and have overrun large parts of Syria and Iraq by their self-styled name, the Islamic State. The BBC's Sebastian Usher has more on that. With the threat from the jihadists growing daily, the actual name of the group may seem the least of the world's worries. But ever since they declared a caliphate in the areas they've seized in Iraq and Syria and changed their name to Islamic State, there's been a quandary over what to call them. Many news organisations and politicians have stuck with the acronym ISIS or ISIL. But the new name, Islamic State, has also gained purchase. Now the Dar al-Ifta, the top Islamic authority in Egypt, has asked for that name not to be used, saying it tarnishes the image of Islam in the West. It's launched a campaign for a new acronym, QSIS, for Al-Qaeda separatists in Iraq and Syria to replace it. That's our report today. The news coming up shortly and then morning brew after that. And the weather mainly fine, very hot in the afternoon. Maximum temperature today, 33 degrees. We'll see you tomorrow on Money for Nothing.